Hebrews 4 is about a warning concerning Sabbath rest. Uh, Let me read the first five verses. Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So, there is a continued warning about Sabbath. And the warning was that these Hebrew Christians, through drawing back or failing to come to faith fully, put their faith in God, even though they made some sort of a profession of faith and they wouldn't be Christians, there was a warning of coming short of the promise of entering into his rest. This discussion in Hebrews is centered about just in chapter 3 it was centered about Psalm 95 there was a long citation from Psalm 95 and also the event in Numbers chapter 14 at Kadesh now the issue was that they the rest in the promised land in a sense was is used by Hebrews here as a type of God's promised rest And when they didn't enter in because of their unbelief, they ended up dying in the wilderness. And so he's using that to admonish these first century Jewish Christians to not shrink back and fail to enter into the rest because that's what those people did. They shouldn't follow that negative example of their forefathers. So here, rest, Sabbath, is what? What is Sabbath in the book of Hebrews? No. Messianic salvation. It's not talking about any day in particular. It's talking about messianic salvation. Yeah. To run in, to, to come to God. So to enter to rest here is an already not yet thing, as we'll see. But it, it is to put your faith in Messiah so you cease from your own works, which is living for self and sin. And the remain, remaining promise of rest is the heaven, or you know, the future rest for the people of God. So according to, according to the book of Hebrews, Sabbath breakers are people who don't believe in Messiah, or don't put their faith in Messiah. Sabbath keepers are anybody who has come to faith. Yeah, it's it. Well, it's a very interesting uh, perspective, and I I think that you find it pretty much through the whole New Testament. Because uh, maybe I get ahead of myself. This is a cross reference here. These glasses. <laughs> yeah, it is. I got progressive lenses. <laughs> Progressively uh, more and, or less fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> As you look at 
Yeah, the Seventh-day Adventists are wanting to say Saturday is the only legitimate Sabbath, but they're missing the point of, um, they're missing the point in a, in a really big way. The point here is this, that uh, in Matthew, in chapter 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So even there, what, was it, what does it mean to come into Sabbath rest? To come to Jesus. You find Sabbath rest in Jesus. And whatever day you keep, if you don't come to Jesus, you're still living in your own works, and you haven't entered into rest. So that concept that's really emphasized here in chapter 4 of Hebrews is very important in understanding Sabbath. So that's why I take the position that what particular day someone gathers together to worship is not commanded in the Bible. And uh, leaving it open and flexible for people throughout history, throughout cultures, wherever they may be able to. In other words, every culture is different about when people have a day where they would be free to get together. So what day you get together is left up to Christian liberty, but that gender and rest is necessary, and if you don't come to Jesus, you're still, I don't care how many Sabbaths you keep, you're still not in rest. You're still a Sabbath breaker. So basically, that's the argument here. So keep that in the back of your mind, and we'll look up some cross-references. Therefore, in light of Psalm 95, in light of the warning in Hebrews 3, we're studying Hebrews 4, by the way, on verse 1, it says, let us fear... Us here being believers, uh, warning, uh, it's a warning about complacency. So believers should not just be complacent and think that everything's okay. They should be concerned. Uh, while a promise remains, so this is a standing promise. So the, pro- the, the standing promise is that Messianic salvation is offered to all people. Whoever will come in faith on God's terms shall enter into rest. Of uh, any of you should come short of it. They're coming up short means to show up late <laughs> or to be left behind in the race. The, the term there in the, in the Greek means to show up late or to be left behind in a race uh, and kind of being a laggard. So. Yeah, just you didn't get there in time and you missed out. So there's a danger of failing to enter. Without Christ, we're all over. Yep. Okay, let's look up some cross-references. Diane, could you look up Numbers 14.34? And Steve, you got a Bible there? Okay. Proverbs 28.14. Proverbs 28:14 and Dan Jeremiah 32:40 and Pete Matthew 7:26 and 27. I got a lot of verses here. Late Romans 3, 3 and 4, and then Linda Romans 11:20 and Stephen 1 Corinthians 10:12 and Judah 2 Timothy 2:13. You know, I never noticed. I'm glad you're just told us that. I, Gary's always asked me about seven. As far as I'm concerned, every day is seven, but I didn't know why. Now I know why. I'm seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't know why. Yes. Did you develop this in the first three chapters? Because a few things, or are you basing your kind of quick conclusion or answer on that sermon that you gave that kind of expounds the whole thing? 
Well, if you, well, the sermon expounded it, but I got the concept from Matthew 11 and 12 and Hebrews. All right, because Matthew made it, because Matthew in the context really makes it clear that we're talking about messianic salvation. Because right after Jesus says, "Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest," he says, "Take my yoke upon upon you." Well, the Jewish people understood the Sabbath. To be under the yoke was to be under these Sabbath regulations. And James said that in, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So why put a yoke on the disciples that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And so they were under this yoke. And Jesus said, take my yoke because my burden is light. You know, in other words, come to me and you'll find true rest, not all these regulations. What happens? Now, how does Matthew let us know that that was with the issue? Matthew 12, the whole chapter, they, they start rebuking Jesus for being a Sabbath breaker. The, the irony is that they preferred their yoke to Jesus' rest. Oh, amen. Amen. And so, Hebrews picks up the same theme and says, if you don't come to Messiah, you're still laboring under the yoke of bondage, and you're, you're still, what does it say here? later in this chapter, uh, verse Hebrews 4.10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works, as God did from his. Now what works do we need to rest from? Well, number one, trying to save ourselves through, through, through works righteousness. And then included in the idea is the work of sin. We need to cease from sin and come to God. And, and, and they're entering a true rest. And the argument here, by the way, that I'm going to bring out, is that God's rest is permanent. And then when he rested from the work of creation, it was, it was something that was finished at the foundation of the world. World, and it's a permanent rest. Well, then that's where peace comes in. The peace I give you passes understanding. With that rest, salvation yep. comes peace. Peace with God. Yep. The yoke of Jesus is light. Like, amen. And uh, and we find true rest for our souls. And rather than laboring under works righteousness, trying to please God and always falling short, we we receive full and complete forgiveness and salvation from Jesus, who who paid the price once for all. Even in the, the Matthew passage, he says they're going to come, you know, come late. It's like the ten virgins, and they go to the wedding feast, and the yeah. wedding feast. They showed up late. Yeah, they said they. And while they were going away to make the purchase, they thought of that afterwards. Those who were ready went in with him, and the door was shut. The virgin said, Lord, Lord, open for us. Truly, as if you don't know you, it was the same concept. Yeah. If they don't enter into the to rest and now, yeah, there's, a, there's a day when it's too late. So, this is a gospel message. Wow. <laughs> this is, this is a, there's a lot of different passages you can preach the gospel from, but this is simply one of them. Okay, let's look at our cross references. Numbers 14, 34. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days. For every day you shall bury your guilt a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. <laughs> well, that was at Kiddish, where they decided that the promised land was not worth the effort. And so God let them stay there for forty years until the whole generation died because they didn't want to enter in. Okay, then uh, Steve, Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the man who always 
So if you fear God, that's a blessing. But if you harden your heart and don't listen to God, that's bad. <laughs> well, it's a very simple truth, but you know it's the most important one we can learn. Jeremiah 32.40 And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Yeah, I will put my God said I will put my fear in their hearts so that they won't depart from me. So God's work of grace gives us the a fear of Him that listens to Him and trusts Him. And so that's a promise that God was going to do in the future to Israel so that they would serve Him and not depart like their forefathers. Matthew seven, twenty six and twenty seven.
Well, it's probably some about human nature. I don't know. Pizza a year, is it more like that in Europe or less? Keith knows France. Are they more skeptical about mass movements or do they jump on to? Um, don't you think the early charismatic movement was like that? But if it hadn't been for that, I would have stuck where I am. Okay, uh, that's a good point. Uh, I'm not suggesting that nobody gets saved at these things. I mean, look how many people get saved at Billy Graham or whatever. But we've got to be careful because we tend to just want to get with the crowd, and whether it's good or bad. I think that there's more of a cynicism in Europe, having lived in Nazism and political bandwagons that were very caustic to, and you can still go around and say, well, that, there's the wreckage that those movements caused still there, so that there's more of a healthy cynicism against bandwagonism, and we're looked at as more naive, because any bandwagon comes along, we think that, well, the masses must be right, so there's be a different uh, viewpoint in that. Oh, but it, no, that's true. You know, that's true. Uh, but if they go together. I, wrote, I read a fantastic book back when I was researching this when I was in seminary by Peter Berger, who's a Christian uh, sociologist. And he says that is the unique thing about Americans is that we have this seemingly contradictory blend of individualism, which is rooted in our culture, and this uh, conformity to whatever the, the, the movement is. And those two things have coexisted. And I have to go get that book again. Be a man and join our movement. <laughs> <laughs> be a man and be a promise keeper, you know. Uh, I, but he says it, it, it seems contradictory, but it's always been the case in, in America. Well, let's get back to what you said. Promise keepers. What's the, promise, what's the problem with that? Because we're trusting man. Hey, let man. Let God be true to every man a liar. I don't know if I'll keep my promises, but I know God will keep his. It's just, it's just, you're going to be, I'm going to be a better person. You know, I'm going to be a better person. Well, um, you fall right on your face unless you're trusting God. I promise not to sin. Okay. I was just going to say about this bandwagon stuff. One thing is that something like that has one good advantage, and that is that it sifts out the people who really are poor and really aren't. Well, um, what happens is people get caught up in it, and a lot of times it doesn't last. And that's part of the thing with these big mass movements is that they always fizzle out, and then uh, you have to get another one to take its place. So you read Romans 3, 3 and 4, right? And so Linda had Romans eleven twenty. You will say that the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Yeah, there's this uh, tension and balance in the scriptures between the assurance we have because of the finished work of Christ and our faith, and a godly fear to not start trusting ourselves. You know, so we, it's not taking away assurance, but it's giving it in the right context. That yes, we're grafted in by faith, but, but rather than saying, well, look how poor I am, I am we should say, yeah, look at, you know, I'm an unworthy sinner. 
and God has been just kind and gracious to me. So there's this balance of, that goes in with assurance of also fearing lest we fall away. And that's what this next verse is about. Um, Stephen, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. You think you stand to heed lest you fall. And why? Because our confidence has to be in God and not in ourselves. We put no confidence in the flesh. Right. In fact, that's what you said. That's why they're proud, is they stand on sand. Whenever they stand on sand, they're proud. But the man that stands on the rock is humble because he knows that God is the cornerstone. God did it all and you did nothing. There's yep. a difference between standing. That standing is these people on sand. They're fall. They're going to fall. They're so proud. Yeah. And then show me a born again preacher who knows what Christ has done for him and what he's went through for him. He's going to sit there and smart off about himself. No, yeah, no. The self is very shaky. Self is well, actually, as, as, there is an irony there in Matthew, uh, Dan, because in Matthew seven, the ones who are building a sand come and say, "Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles and we cast out demons?" And they seem to be very assured. In Matthew twenty-five. When the righteous are rewarded, they said, when did we visit you? When did we... They didn't even know they'd done anything that was praiseworthy. The, the people, Matthew, they're being rewarded. They didn't even know they did anything. And he says, well, whenever you did, at least these my brethren. But obviously they weren't thinking, look at this, I visited prisoners and I fed the poor and I was, I was a great Christian. They just didn't realize they did anything. Because they'd done it by God's grace for the Lord, not for any personal gain. Okay, one more passage, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen, amen. I'm, I'm very glad about that. And at the debate, uh, the issue about assurance was brought up a couple of weeks ago. And when we were privately discussing it, Greg asked me about assurance because for some reason it seems like people think that unless it's in your own hands, you can't have any assurance. And, and I, I never could understand that. And, but I, the fact is, assurance it, is not 100% or 0%. There are degrees of assurance. All right? But like the man who says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It, it's and so I said, I, I understand that. I, I have assurance, but it doesn't mean I don't take these verses seriously. And uh, some people want to say, well, you just write your name in the front of your Bible and put the date there, and from now on you have assurance. And then you your name. I wrote it in my Bible. I know I'm saved. Uh, no, the assurance is on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the, to the degree we're trusting that, the more assurance we have. To the degree we trust man, the less we have. Okay, Hebrews 4, 2. For indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united in faith with those who heard, in those who heard. So they, had, they heard the gospel. That's the word gospel, by the way. They had the gospel preached to them. I'm going to talk about that this morning in the sermon, because I'm preaching on Abraham. Uh, um, the New Testament says Abraham heard the gospel. I think that it shows there that the message of the gospel is a mishnah itself. I mean, that means a feast for those of you who were here we talking about. The, the coming of the gospel 
is comes to both, it comes to the universal call, the gospel comes, and if you have faith and receive it, it's into life, and if you have unbelief, it condemns you to death by the same coming of yeah. the word. Uh, that reminds me of a passage, Keith, that I heard John MacArthur preach on one time, and I just thought it was so... One of the most profound sermons I've ever heard was from John MacArthur uh, at a pastor's conference. And, oh boy. There it is. <laughs> I'm just going to go get some wine. Yeah, I need something here. It talks about this, this um, in Second Corinthians, it talks about this aroma of life and death. It's just like what Keith was just talking about. Those that believe with the sweet aroma of salvation, but those that are lost with the stench of death. Yes. Well, I heard John MacArthur preaching on that. So we don't know the aroma of sweet salvation. And the lost we preach to someone with the stench of death. Yeah, here it, here it is. He was preaching, MacArthur was preaching on the triumphal uh, procession that we're a part of. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but from sincerity as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And MacArthur's message was so powerful, I could never forget it. It was life-changing for me. And he, and he said, it's a, you know, to participate in this triumphal entry, I mean, not triumphal, triumphal procession. It was the king coming back from the battle with his entourage that would come through the city and everybody would come out. And he said, in, in, the, in the Roman Empire, you were lucky in a lifetime to ever see one of these things. But anyhow, he says, if we're, if we're part of this, and Christ is the one who's, you know, conquered, there, there's this dividing, there's this uh, life and there's death, there's this joyful reception of the good news, and then there's this violent reaction against it. And he says, God is glorified in both, ultimately. Because as long as we don't peddle God's word or adulterate it and we preach it accurately and fervently in order to bring it to the people, it will be life for some and death for others who reject it. But he said, that's not your business, that's God's. It's your business to preach it accurately. And he says, if you, and he was preaching to pastor, he said, if you preach the word of God accurately and fervently, God will use that. And if you end up with a tiny little church, you don't worry about Amen. that. That's, no, that's none of your business. Amen. It's your business to participate, and it's a great honor and a joy to participate. And don't ever think otherwise. MacArthur, that was in, I think, about 1995 or six when I heard that. It changed my life, and it changed my perspective about what it means to be a pastor. And I, from then on, I decided never again am I going to complain about how few people come to church or what, anything like that, because this is too great of a privilege to be complaining about the results. <laughs> and that was MacArthur, John MacArthur, and there, there's a, a humble man himself. By the way, 
Jan and I are going to interview John MacArthur on May 22nd. Talk about a humble man, a guy with as much clout as MacArthur is willing to take a half hour to get on our little Jan's little radio show, local here in Minnesota, and, and talk to us about the gospel. So there, that impresses me. Try to call Schuler on to see if he talked to you. Yeah. <laughs> Not that you want to. That was his. Oh, I closed my Bible. Second Corinthians. At the end of Second Corinthians two, I think the last three or four verses. Okay, let's get. I need to get back on task here. Okay, the good news. Let me hear what we were talking about. The good news is preach. And and, the, and talk about MacArthur's idea that the size of the group. Look at the good news that was preached to them at Kadesh. How many believed? Two. <laughs> how many? How many died in unbelief? Millions. So I mean, don't feel bad. I mean, it's not always you don't always get a big crowd of believers when you preach the gospel. It's almost like the first Passover when you're doing the Passover dinner. Was the same concept. You had the first Passover where God spared them and didn't kill the firstborn of Israel, but of all that whole group that saw what happened, only two of that first Passover believed. Wow. Because <laughs> the other, the rest died in unbelief, and all those forty, the people that came up that died in unbelief were the participants in that first Passover. You're right. And well, that should put the fear of God in us. We have had the good news preached to us, just as they also. So Caleb and Joshua is probably the one that reported the good news that the people didn't want to believe. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Uh, so the, the rest is entered by those who believe. Let me hand out some verses for you to be looking up, and then I have some citations from... Uh, William Lane and Simon Kistemacher. But Acts 3.26, where are we at here? Daniel, Acts 3.26. Karim, Acts 13.46. And then uh, Keith, Romans 10.16 and 17. And John Manson, Galatians 3.8. And uh, Joel. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and Dick, 1 Peter 1.12. And while you're getting those, I'm going to find these notation, I mean, about citations. 98. Okay. You know, that first, I was approached uh, and and I'm amazed, and I'm glad I read your article on the purpose of your life. God bless you a million times over. I was dizzy reading it, let alone you researching it, giving the truth. But I mean, uh, they came to me, and here they are, big big churches, you know, big pastors that should know the gospel, and they got, give me this little book, you know, this guy that goes to these classes. They know something wrong, but can't put their finger on it, so that's why i got to get a bunch of these brochures. Here are, you talk about falling away in sense, but yet they're believers, being deceived. Men that are uh, born again preachers and just gathering in this book and all their uh, all their uh, people are going to this and he said I know something but they couldn't put a finger on it. So you see how slippery it is? Like you said from Schuler, we kind of understand because he made it man centered. Yeah. But here he's like it's he says it's about God, it's about God, but then he's so slippery. I actually got dizzy. I had to put your thing down, read it, read, read it, read, read it. Here you're doing the research 
done it. And but there's millions of Christians right now sucking that up. I mean, it, I know. They go through the 40 days, he told me, and they're very serious about it, my boss. Yeah, they, 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 you know what? What's happening is the Bible's being pushed out. Oh. Exactly. And so it is. Well, the reason, the reason for people not having discernment is that they're not being taught the Word of God. They're not. And the discernment is objective, and it comes from the Scriptures. I'm writing an article, and the next article is going to be on the discerning of spirits based on what we did at the conference here. All right. Here we go. Um, let me hold on to your verses. I have a citation from Lane here. The past generation received the promise in vain because they refused to believe the word they heard. Numbers 14, um, chapter 14. They did not share the faith of Joshua and Caleb who listened to the promise of God and regarded it as certain. Already in his first occurrence in Hebrews, pistis, that's faith, is clearly, is clearly confident expectation for the future. It is the quality of a response that appropriates divine, the divine promise and recognizes the reliability of God. The word that they heard um, is the revealed word of God. The generation in the desert did not trust um, the unproved word they'd heard, and so were disqualified from enjoying what had been promised. For the men and women addressed, who were called to faith on the basis of God's final word spoken through the Lord, faith is clearly an eschatological faith, a present grasp on future reality. Hearing a message of good news does not guarantee that what has been promised will be received. Only faith as a confident expectation for the future can secure the promised reality. And so there is this future aspect. I thought, that's what I liked about what Lane said. Faith always has to also be grasping the future. Because we're promised a heaven that we haven't seen. We believe in a Savior we have not seen. We believe in promises that are not yet seen. And we have unseen yet hope. In fact, in many cases, when we come to faith, our present life gets worse. Uh, not always, but I, I, I like um, <laughs> I like what uh, who's the guy that does the Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort. I like what he says. He says most of these preachers are giving people a bill of goods. Come to Jesus, and you're going to have a better life. You may get persecuted. You may lose your family. You may lose your job. Yeah, and so you don't. And so there's this hope. So what happened to, to the generation at Kadesh is that this idea that they could actually go into the Promised Land and that God would defeat enemies that were much greater than they, and that God would actually secure the land for them and help them have a central place of worship, and that He would be their God and they'd be their people, that was unseen. That was some future possibility that they didn't think could happen. And so the, their unbelief, in a sense, was un, unwillingness to see that God's promises for the future are certain, even though they're yet unseen at this point. And so later in Hebrews 11, we'll see faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. Okay, Acts 3.26, that was Daniel. Yeah, um, this is the end of Peter's second sermon, just before Peter and John were for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Yeah, that was, uh, he sent his servant, Messiah, to the Jews first, to the Jew first, to turn them to the promises of God. And so, similar issue here. Acts 13.46. 
Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Wow. Wow. Sobering words. It was necessary that the word of God be preached to you first, but since you repudiate it, you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, therefore we'll go to the Gentiles. It's sobering words, isn't it? Gotta listen to the gospel. Gotta listen to the gospel. Romans ten, sixteen and seventeen. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Yes. You know, if we want, obviously the key issue is faith, right? That's the, that's the watershed as to whether you enter into the promises of God or whether you do not. That was true in the Old Testament. It's true in Acts. It's true throughout church history. Here, faith comes by the word of Christ. Now, there's a, it's a genitive there, so there's an issue whether it's a sub, objective or subjective genitive. It means either the word that comes from Christ or the word about Christ. And when we were on the radio, we decided which it was, Dick. Do you remember? <laughs> I don't either. I think either one would fit the reality of the situation because the gospel does come from Christ. He gave us the gospel. And the gospel is about Christ. So you're not going to go into air either way. But if we believe that to be true, the faith comes from hearing, then what should we be doing if we're teaching or preaching? We should be preaching about the gospel and about the person of Jesus Christ because the only way people will get faith is that by that means. And so everything that goes on that detracts from that is making it more difficult for people to have the faith that they need. So that's why I'm so deaf against all these agendas that come into churches that aren't the gospel. Uh, Dean? Well, in a, in a nutshell, the Bible tells us that we're saved by faith. Right. Because we've got a verse where faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So is it any surprise to us that all these other agendas are coming into the church? It's just to weaken the church. It's, it's the envy. Yeah, exactly. Keep us busy over here and keep us out of the Word. Yeah, That's exactly. What we got our, our faith and our is strengthened and we are encouraged in the faith as we share together in the Word of God. And, um, it says the... Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. We saw that last week. Later in Hebrews, it says, don't forsake gathering together. So this is the way that God builds faith and strength and causes us to have this faith that we need. It says, Kistelmacher says, the last clause in 4.2, but he had the wording in a number of ancient manuscripts, varies in translation. There are two usual ways of translating the clause. One of these, because it, the word, was not united by faith in those who heard. This translation is by far more prevalent, frankly, because it fits the context is readily understood. The manuscript evidence, however, favors the second translation because they did not share the faith of those who listened. The implication is that among the Israelites in the desert, there were two people who obeyed the word of God, Joshua and Caleb. It's rather strange that the writer is not more explicit. He leaves the reader to fill in the details. But I think it is clearly Joshua and Caleb who were the ones who listened. And listening is, a, by the way, an Old Testament theme. Shabbat, hear, O Israel. Listen. Hear means to listen in the Hebraic sense. 
It doesn't mean just to have words bouncing on your eardrums. It means to take it to heart, to listen. So to listen to the gospel, and God will use that. Okay, then we have um, Galatians 3.8. John. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to, pre- I'm going to end my sermon with that verse, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. But I'm going to preach about Abraham today, and we're going to, you know, I'm going to end on that passage. But I think it's fantastic that it says the, the gospel came to Abraham. So, uh, the good news is already preached in advance to Abraham when it says in your seed all the time. So that, there must be something about the gospel in uh, Genesis 12.3. Oh, I'm excited about that. Joy on uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we all will constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Over and over again, it says it performs its work in those who believe. It's God's word, not man's. You know, there's no reason to change it to make it sound more appealing to man. That's really one of the issues that we've been talking about in in some of these conferences and debates. And uh, remember the debate that Friday night, and at the very end, uh, Dr. Boyd said, "What I believe is Jesus and His love. And anything that doesn't fit with that, I can't interpret the Bible that way." What's that saying? Well, I have to change the Bible to fit my preconceived ideas about what would be Jesus and his love. But see, it's God's word. It's not our word. And, and the faith is, is God's... God is the one that works faith in the hearts of the hearers. And so if we, if we believe that, we don't have any reason to change it. Why change it? Just preach it for what it is. Because, yeah, you know, people don't like it. They never have. But, but some people will believe and God will use that to change their lives.
tells us what's happening with the coming of Christ and the new covenant. These people in the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, all Isaiah, all the prophets of old had this, you know, desire. Who, who, you know, who is this one coming? When is he going to come? Yeah. And to all of us, we've been given this privilege. We know who he is. We know his name. We, we know him personally. And wow. um, that's greater than. And that's what it goes back to um, the greatest of these and John. I think it's a John the all of John Baptist, he's the greatest born of the women, but he was the least of the kingdom of heaven's greatest. John. Yeah. Because we've been given the great testimony of John. John can only point out this is him, but we we we're close across the church here. We can affirm that there's the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Great blessing and privilege. Absolutely. We keep that in in our forefront we'll never get bored with the gospel. Little people do, I guess. Tell us something new. What is, in that verse we read last week about the itching years? Tell us what we want to hear. Don't tell us what the Bible says. Hebrews 4 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Yeah, let's, boy, there's a lot of things to talk about here. Let's talk about enter. The word there is present tense. But if you look ahead to verse 9, it says there remains a rest for the people of God. So verse 3 says we presently enter rest if we believe, have believed. Verse 9 says if we have believed, there remains a rest. Now, how do we resolve this apparent contradiction? I know what Ryan's thinking. We have this already, not yet. We've already entered rest in the sense that our sins are forgiven. We've ceased from our own works. We're not trying to be right with God through works righteousness. And uh, we are firmly trusting in Messiah who has given us rest. We've come to him. We've said, come to me. You are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But yet there remains an eschatological rest that's greater. There remains for Messiah to return and set up his millennial kingdom. There remains to be you know, the resurrected body and the, and the great eternal promises. And so there also remains a rest. So we have the already not yet. And the Bible, if you can't understand already not yet, you're not going to understand prophecy. You're not going to understand the Bible. People are wanting to make an either-or out of a lot of things that aren't either-or. Okay, so it's now and it is future. It's both and. Uh, his rest is uh, mentioned in Psalm 95.11 here. That's what's quoted. They will not enter there. It had to do with the promised land. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world. Let's talk about that little phrase. came up in the debate. This verse here might help us interpret it. What does from the foundation of the world mean here in Hebrews 2, 4 and verse 3? Yeah, it was creation here, right? Because Genesis 2, 2. Genesis 2. the foundations of the earth Yeah, what was he talking about? Creation. Creation. What was he talking about here? When did God rest? After he created. 
So from creation, we have rest. From God's act of creation. Now, how did uh, Dr. Boyd interpret this when Todd asked him about it? Anybody remember that part of the debate? Remember, um, I had these five pages of verses, and it, the, the last three were names in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. Yeah. He, he, he said, Dr. Boyd said, the names are going in and coming out throughout history. They weren't in there from the foundation of the world, means continually from that up. But what is the, can we make that kind of an interpretation of that phrase from the foundation of the world based on what we're seeing here? The, the Job one would be another incident. No, it's talking about back in creation, not, yeah, from the beginning, yes. Yeah. There's something up, maybe you look at this, and Jesus said the works that I do are not my works, but those of my Father. He was, what, 6,000 years later, and he was after, after the creation, and doing these works in time, 2,000 years ago, and he says that his works were the Father's works, and there's no apparent contradiction there. Right, although we understand that he's, uh, oh, as far as him doing more works in here, yeah, I think he, uh, he was referring, in the, in the, that's, I was going to talk about that. The Jewish, the rabbis, when they discussed Sabbath, said that the only, that God could work on Sabbath because he had to keep the universe going. Alright, so he had the exemption. Yeah, they said that God could work on Sabbath because somebody has to keep the universe, you know, under control. And when Jesus said, my father is working, Till now, and I work. He was claiming to be God, and that really made them bad. In other words, when Jesus did something they, they considered Sabbath breaking, he says, "No, I can work on Sabbath because I'm God." But, he, but his works, and all the works he did, weren't contrary to the explicit Sabbath laws that were given in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's true, but. The argument he used there was that he was, I mean, the reason for the passage you're talking about was a claim of deity, and they understood it to be that. So, there are so many claims of deity in the Bible, if you just know, in the Gospels, if you just know the Hebrew background. <coughs> Excuse me, now let's talk about this here contradiction. Hebrews 4, 3 says that God's works are done from the foundation of the world. He created, he's finished. Now, is that a denial of providence? Or the, or the God's ongoing work. No, it's not at all. God is continually, in fact, it says he holds it all things together by the word of his power. But And so again, you have this, from the perspective of eternity, everything is finished and done. And certain, from God's perspective, but it still happens in time, as far as the outworking of it. So here, but, for, but the point I wanted to make, though, was from the foundation of the world, here has to do with Creation. Foundation of the world meant creation. I read somebody one time who said, no, the foundation of the world means that we have a geocentric universe. No, I'm not kidding you not. I was reading this Christian writer who said, the earth is, is stationary. It's sitting on a foundation. And the rest of the universe swirls around the earth. <laughs> That's not what it means. Um, you were mentioning the other day about the already not yet, and we've talked about it a lot, but if I were writing in 1885, would I understand that concept? 
question. Because uh, I think you were saying that the expansion of that thing was like 1950. It was yeah. relatively recent. George Eldon Ladd was... In, in regard to the kingdom of God, I think that we owe a lot to George Eldon Ladd, who, looking at these passages where it talks about entering the kingdom, all right, and then the passage about the kingdom being future, he said he he really made a made that a central point in his theology. I, do you know of anybody before that ever discussed uh, well, it? Not with that particular terminology, but uh, what I would say is that. When you read before, we go, well, you'll find the elements of that. You'll find the elements of it. What he did was just give us this term and this general sense of things to really categorize it in yeah. a way that's really, you know, fairly simple. It's already not yet very simple to think about. If you, you grasp your own concept, you see all this stuff. Go through all the commentaries, you know, um, you know, Luther and Calvin. You're going to find them believing that we've already received. Um, and, you know, part of our inheritance of our salvation. Then there's still a few, yeah, they, they was... But there's still a few. Right, right. So you've got to find the elements of it. you just got to have such a nice, clean form as an elephant that George Lamb did. Yeah, Lamb did a, a real service to that. And it's amazing, though, when he first came out with his theology about this already not yet, the presence of the future was the name of one of his books. It was a little bit controversial, and there was some debate about it, but now almost everybody uses the term. It's just become part of evangelical theology because it does explain the text. What we have. It makes it, it just makes sense that it's both and, it's not either or. And so in some sense the kingdom is present now, in some sense the kingdom is future. And what he did was really made a case for premillennialism based on using that theology to reject the replacement theology in the amillennialism, he made a case for premillennialism by using that. My reason for bringing it up wasn't to derail anything that we're doing here this morning, but my, my reason is more like Bobby's doing a fair amount of writing. One of the things he wanted to do is to get into the debate. Do you remember that whole thing? And the question was, did you ever learn anything new in a debate? And the answer is, yeah. You know, the Lord is expanding things so that we understand it better. Right. In a lot of things. It's not new truth. Understanding it better. Yes, and you can make a new, you can, contributions to theology can be made even now, as far as understanding a scripture. If I made one in my whole life, it probably was that thing in Matthew 24, of uh, this generation shall not pass away. If, if indeed my reasoning was correct and biblical, that was a contribution, because I don't see anybody else ever writing an essay defending that perspective. So you can still learn things, but it, if that really knew it was in the Bible, if it's valid, all right? His works were finished from the foundation of the world, okay? So God is rested from his act of creation. That doesn't mean he rested from providentially caring for his creation. But he rested from the act of creating. Uh, 108. I have a quote here. Let's see. That's a good one. Oh, here, that's the one that uh, Keith brought up. That's John 5. The term rest merits attention, especially if we think of Jesus' words when the Jews persecuted him for healing an invalid on the Sabbath. Quote, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. John 5.17. Rest for God does not mean idleness. Rather, it is a sensation from the work of creation. God continues to enjoy this rest now that the work of his creation is completed. So that Hebrews talking about the work of creation, that's completed. It doesn't mean that God is idle. 
<laughs> right. So that's how we resolve that one. Well, we're just going to talk about the Bible. We always do. This morning our topic is Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, one of the key people in the Bible. So you can learn some more. Yeah. God bless you.